previously on Stories About Music. We met through friends at a uh, house show a few blocks from here. I'm sitting in Keith Freund's living room, somewhere in Akron's Highland Square neighborhood. And was the attraction immediate? (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) Keith got to know Linda because she was a frequent flyer at Square Records. I don't know, but I liked him. And he used to come over and hang out with me. And at the time, I felt I was like in a crisis mode where I felt like, I just want to be alone. I'm going to be alone for the rest of my life. Again, their friend and cover artist, Jacob Feige. Keith worked at the Akron Art Museum, and he started to get into 20th century abstract painting. Uh, in particular, there's a painter. Yeah, Julian Stanchek. His house is like, it was just like this fantasy of like how I wanted life to be. The irony of Keith's monologue was not lost on me. My experience of the Trouble Books included picturing myself with their life. You know, Keith has kind of a modesty and humility to him that I think is admirable. And I think that's really hard to do. I think most artists, you have your sights set on some kind of credit for things, acknowledgement as one of your motivating uh, forces. And I don't think that really is one of Keith's primary motivating forces. I was lost in these thoughts, watching them play when my companion tapped me on the shoulder. I think this might be their last show. Uh, Eventually we started dating and took a trip together to Europe um, and we didn't plan any of it. (laughs) I think we just thought we would like walk around and we brought a tiny tent that like packed up to the size of a football. So all we had were, you can't call them backpacks. We weren't even backpacking, they were knapsacks. They were like the size you would take to school as a kid. We each had one of those and we had a sleeping bag. I think we just envisioned this idea of us like pitching a tent anywhere. There's so much, in the States here, there's so much empty space and like empty lots where you could pitch a tent, sleep, pack it up the next morning and nobody ever knows you're there. But in especially in Germany where we first were everything is really used so we didn't see like dead zones the only like dead zone we could find the first night that we were there was like right next to some train tracks that were constantly being used and the whole night it was like raining and I was panicked that all of a sudden somebody yelling at us in a language I didn't understand was going to be like what are you doing here get out of here and we'd have nowhere to go but it was like getting through that sort of high stress of traveling and having, you know, no money and nowhere to go, um, that we sort of realized that we worked really well together and then we talked about getting married at that point. So a year later we got married and, and then a few years later we just decided to, uh, to have a, a baby. <laughs> <laughs> and here we are now. Here we are now. You're listening to Stories About Music, a podcast on the intersection of music, journalism, and my life. My name is Brendan Maddox, and this is part two of Story About Music number four, a story about the trouble books. I followed a hedgehog through the leaves, an island outside Avignon. You were asleep back in the tent And wondered if when I get back home I can take this gentle knife And apply it to my overdraft notice 
We crashed in Keith and Linda's basement that night. I turned over the trip and what I even thought I was doing here anymore. I wanted to be like them, but I also wanted to be them. But also, I didn't want to be unknown like them. That motivating force of recognition burned strong, had propelled me across 400 miles in the first place. It felt so depressingly aspirational to be making a documentary with no conflict, so sad to try and make my name with their life. And yet, I still had some hope that I could pull this one out of the gutter. I stayed up late, trying to delicately word my next question, inspired by something that their friend Jacob had said. I, I actually think that the, their personalities, as people, I, I think they probably take more risks in their music, or maybe the music is a venue for risks in a way that, uh, you know, their day-to-day lives or social interactions aren't. Uh, that's true for a lot of artists. You know, they save the uncertainty in their lives up for their art. Is there a lot of uncertainty in life in Akron? <laughs> no, actually. It, I mean, there's as much uncertainty as there is anywhere. I have found personally in a small to mid-sized city like Akron, stagnation is really your enemy. You know, complacency in deciding it's just easier to like, I don't know, watch watch a TV show than watch than go and listen to the mix you made and keep working on it um that's the enemy in some place like akron it's interesting i would completely disagree with jacob (laughs) um not that it's not a problem here but that it would be exclusive to here at all akron is an important part of trouble books history keith and linda have had the free time to make music because of the city's dirt cheap prices a positive side to the otherwise lackluster economy bad safety record, and shrinking population. But it could also be said that their isolation from mainstream counterculture kept them from ever achieving something more. When I arrived, the former rubber capital of the world was really empty, too much so for a warm Saturday afternoon in August. Driving west on Market Street from one end of town to the other, we passed industrial buildings, close-packed residences, cracked shopping centers, in an outsized Arabian dome belonging to the Tangiers nightclub. The drive felt eerily symmetrical to the Philadelphia suburbs where I grew up, right down to the main road that split the middle-class families from the low-class. Dave Ignizio runs Square Records on that divide. He, and Keith and Linda, have all lived in Highland Square for close to a decade. In a way, there's a lot of people that are from Akron, but people are always looking to move on. So, um, it's... It's, it's where I meet a lot of cool people, but unfortunately you have to say goodbye to a lot of people at the same time, so. Do you have any idea uh, why Keith and Linda may have stayed? Um, I've talked to Keith about that, you know, several times. And the, the idea of, like, moving to big cities never really appealed to him or trying to, like, make it in, you know, New York or whatever like that. Like, just, it's never been an interest to him, I don't think. Just practically for the same reason I I don't want to ever go to those kind of cities generally you know it's just we're all kind of comfortable here you know and it's it's not necessarily like being the big fish in a small pond thing or anything it's just this is kind of a nice place to be it's affordable and enough people have stayed around that you can create like really good friendships and communities around here so
The next morning, Keith and Linda took turns interviewing while the other watched their daughter, Evie. Your house, I would say, is different from most American households in that, one, you don't seem to have a television. So my first question is, what's wrong with you? We do have a television. <laughs> it's upstairs. We, it, we just haul it out when we have people over to watch a movie. <laughs> um, but life, life for, you, for you both seems to be more about um, these more analog things that hang out around here. Yeah. Um, I like the act of putting a record on. I think it keeps me focused. I find the unlimited choices of, um, of a terabyte worth of music to be sort of paralyzing. But um, the records, we've, we'd always been interested in records, and both of us, Linda and I, had collected records. And yeah, we had some extra money left over, decided to do United Colors of Trouble Books, and... Um, our friend Mike's Talons record, Songs for Babes. And we just put it up on our website with a PayPal button and, you know, $8. Dropped a couple off at local record stores. And um, and then we just shipped them out. We packaged them in old pizza boxes from Mike and I both worked at a pizza place. Uh, we didn't want to buy record mailers because they cost like a dollar each to buy the official record mailers. And I really just thought with the internet that that would become this new way of doing things, that fans would put something out themselves, they would print the jackets themselves or do whatever they could to keep the cost low. You know, people would run blogs and websites that would find interesting, exciting new music. They would mention it, and then other people would go to that band's website and purchase the music. But I guess m maybe people don't have enough time or attention to do that. So... It's, it's still a thing, I feel like, where you need a label and you need to pay a you know, promotion company and have a manager just to, get, just to get places to pay attention. Where are you going with that? She's going to try it on her microphone. <laughs> she has a whole studio you don't know about. In going to Akron, I wanted to be a journalist, observant and detached. But I was starting to question if the ship hadn't already sailed. From the beginning, I hadn't been impartial to their ideas. I idolized them. Many of their friends described a similar envy. One of Keith's closest collaborators, Mike Tolan, described the world of the trouble books, an impulse to surround yourself with art and beauty and making nice things, as just who Keith and Linda are as people. The more I looked at it, the more I wanted their life, because my other options weren't looking so good. Like some of our most creative and ambitious friends have used their ambition to take their energies to places where they thought it would blossom. You know, New York, most specifically for a while, would draw all the everyone with a fine art degree. Honestly, I've you know they're all wonderful people that I love, but my the impression that I've gotten is that their work died there that they went there, you're forced to work as hard as you can to pay your rent. You take a 45-minute train ride from Brooklyn to Manhattan and then back, and then you come home and you're tired, and you don't have space, and you end up just watching Netflix. I don't have a lot of acquaintances that have done work or much work after they've left here. But the setting, Akron and all the suburbs like it, just feels so wrong. It feels like giving up, backsliding from the life I wanted. 
and I was about to fall headfirst into it once this trip ended anyway. In some ways, I identified more with the person that Linda used to be. Before settling down with Keith, she spent a lot of time traveling just to get away from Akron. I guess it was a place that I'd been for so long, and like I said, I was sort of having a crisis where I felt like I needed to move somewhere else. I think a lot of people go through that where they think they're going to move somewhere and everything's going to change. And really, you just bring whatever it is with you. So I didn't realize the subtlety of staying in a place and learning maybe even just how to be like closer friends with people and kind of growing up a little bit. So I had some of that to go through. The answer I wanted wasn't in sight, just another post-grad dichotomy. On the one hand, they are a very happy couple, living off the beaten path and making something totally unique while still managing to live a middle-class life in the 21st century. On the other, they're living an anonymous middle-class life, which is nothing like the one that I fantasize about. I want to be as thoughtful as the trouble books, but I want people to notice me. With the trouble books, did you ever have any sort of grand plans, like be famous sort of thing? Or has it always been? No. Why don't you explain? My fantasy for our band has always been that we would be able to sustain the interest of people enough so that we could sell out of as small of a pressing as a plant is willing to do for us of records. There's something about that that motivates me a lot, and I, I wouldn't be motivated to, like, throw some mp3s up on soundcloud and that'd be the end of like what that is that does that's just feels cheap and meaningless to me so so what i've always wanted is to be able to have a hundred or three hundred or two hundred fifty whatever whatever a pressing plane is willing to do for me that amount of people be willing to pay ten dollars whatever the cost is per record so that i can keep making them mm. and so that linda and i can work together on these things you know, or I can put out something of a friend of mine's that I like, and uh, that be that, that people would enjoy it, that it would improve their life if it's just like 30 minutes in an evening that they listen to it and like it is enough. So when I was talking to Jacob, he said that uh, the thing with Akron is that more than anything else, more than like worrying about somebody taking your wallet or something, you have to worry about uh, stagnating in some way, like either just like coming home and just like, you know, just watching television or versus like coming home and like playing music. Um, yeah. Do you guys ever feel like you're working up against stagnation in Akron? Um, a little bit. A lot of it's more um, stagnation in the form of busy work for me where I've been getting frustrated, you know, coming home and having limited time and there's dishes to be done and sort of all the house maintenance sort of daily life background kind of stuff that um, when I had more free time I would get done and then have time to do other things and I'm still now learning how to do that and not make it into a big deal you know like oh my god the bathroom's a mess I have to clean the bathroom and and then noticing like, oh, you know, like there's mold on the wall in the closet and stuff like that, that um, I guess 
feels like it gets in the way and makes me feel like we're stagnating. But not in that way where I get bored. Like I don't, don't feel like either of us are people who get bored. You know what I mean? Where you come home and it's like, oh, I have no idea what to do. Let's watch a TV show. I don't think either of us really gets that way. How much longer are you both planning on keeping up the trouble books? I don't know. I really don't. Has, um, it, has it ever felt like, oh, maybe we should stop now? Or Yeah, probably. I think Keith goes through that more than I do. Where, you know, he'll say like, well, it's, this is probably the last album that we'll do. And then I think he said that after a couple of them now. And it's never been true. So, um, yeah, I guess I don't really think about that. I sort of just figure if we end up doing something else, then we do. And if not, then it might just be on a long hiatus. I moved back to Pennsylvania and tried to piece together a radio story from what I'd collected. The results were flat and unconvincing, a portrait of two pious saints I was trying to live up to. My attempts to sell the story before it was finished went pretty much ignored. The few producers I did get a hold of all said the same thing. It sounds nice, but we're not interested. Discouraged, I took a job ripping out the window frames in an old folks' home. I spent November mornings trying to tease out a big revelation we could all walk away from this story feeling good about, staring hard into the abyss of white plastic siding, mentally replaying interviews that I've heard so many times I can speak them back to you. And at the same time, Keith and Linda released their fourth full-length as Trouble Books, a short little record named Love at Dusk. There's much less singing and a lot more static. The album passes like an unsettling dream that's punctuated, as Keith notes, by frequent sonic and lyrical apocalypses. I spend my evenings listening to their catalog, trying to find a direction for both my story and my life. On close inspection, things didn't seem so good in Akron. I could hear fear lurking in the words that Keith had written, a fear of loss, of boredom, of aging. Did I not dig deep enough? Was their life in a peaceful new world actually not so peaceful? I worried about my bad intentions sabotaging a good thing, and about whether or not I could actually make a living doing this. I started having nightmares, including a very disturbing one in which a furious Linda berated me for ruining their life while Keith cried. I called Keith one night when I finally felt brave enough to hash out the finer points and frustrations of their life. But then I got nervous, so I instead talked to him about his friend, cover artist, and recurring minor character in this story, Jacob Feige. You know, I, I never really... We never really actively went crazy pursuing the idea of like getting somewhere with our music or touring heavily or anything like that. But at the same time, there was always kind of this wish that, oh, maybe it would be cool if, like you know, we could do more, you know, if I knew that we could sell more so that way we could make more, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, uh, and I think he always had that kind of thing, you know, he w wanted to just, just be a painter, you know, and, you know, now he's painting and teaching and such. Um, I've seen other friends come through that rejection and then feel so embarrassed that they tried at it. They don't want to go back to doing that art anymore. You know, they see it as like, 
you know, basketball tryouts, and now they're just too old to even sort of enjoy shooting around or anything. You know, whereas Linda has always pursued her art and, like, music making with just, like, without any thought for or concern for anybody else, it took something for, I think, both Jacob and I to get over that, and as awkward and cheesy as it sounds, I think the fatherhood thing has a lot to do with that. It's only now that I realized that my visit to Keith and Linda had come at the end of their own tumultuous year. Their daughter was born a few months before they moved. Linda was still between careers, and Keith had had to find a new job after the grant funding his work at the art museum ran out. I just The rhythm that they had settled into, of releasing a record each year and living in Akron's creative underclass, had skipped a beat just like my own. Uh, I always have this thing where when things are really good, I have this like nagging thing of like, oh yeah, and they're just gonna get worse after this, you know, like this is the peak of something, and then disappointment comes next, and et cetera, et cetera. So I always like wonder like, when Linda and I would take trips to go tour and things like that, I'd be like, do I want the plane to go down before or after the the tour? Like, which would be preferable? Because the idea of just, like, going out with her was just, like, just sort of what I wanted to do. <laughs> like, this is the height. Avoid any disappointment. Avoid, you know a widower, widower, and like all that awful stuff, just like, clean break. But how did Linda feel about having to sing those lyrics? I think Keith gets more pessimistic or feels more anxious about big things in life or, I already, I mean, I knew that about him, so the kind of apocalyptic outlook, it's not it's not something it's not something new that I thought, oh my gosh, what's wrong? Like what's happening? <laughs> I mean have to check him in or anything like that. Um Yeah. I don't know. When I was in high school I was really fascinated with morbid things and I was, you know, I'd make my little angsty collages and stuff like that and it was all, you know, pretty morbid, horrible um, imagery and injustices and you know that sort of like like trying to make sense of the world and so I did a lot of work to try to navigate how I felt about things like that and then you know and then here I am freaking out about trying to make dinner when I get home from work <laughs> but um, huh. I don't know when he when he wants if he wants to go there then to me that it's not scary. It's like, oh, so we're going to go there, huh? You know, it, it feels like, what? this could get interesting. I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't find it, um, I guess I don't, I don't find it alarming or anything like that. Oh, 
like, you know, any sort of like crazy thing that could happen, I, I welcomed it, you know, be it war or whatever, because it just seemed like it would shake up what everything that seemed boring to me. And then you go through this phase of thinking that you understand everything and that you like know what's going on. And then like, I feel like as you get older, uh, you just sort of realize that everything is gray area and all these sort of different lives and different experiences can totally exist at the same time and have their own reasons for doing things. And, and then you just not sure how you fit into all of it. <laughs> you just try to be at peace with whatever it is and do what you feel is right. And it's, it's a lot of, it's a lot of weird shift. I feel like between 16 and 26 or something, I don't really know. Probably never ends, huh? So I ended in the place that I started. Only now, when I lay on my back and listen to gathered tones, I no longer envy the people in the music. Because I've always been just like them. I spent a long time trying to make it sound bigger than that, hoping that if I just made this story perfect, it would be something undeniable, groundbreaking. I'd be launched into a successful career making radio, and Keith and Linda would start earning money for their art, and everything would just be great. Finishing meant confronting the possibility that nobody gave a shit. It's a possibility that Keith and Linda had already confronted with their own work and accepted. It didn't change how they treated their output or the pace with which they did it. And the result was somehow more true to them in their relationship and the effect it had on their world. I am starting to see where I fit in and where this piece floats in the vast sea of information. Because whenever I spent hours and hours rewriting, Worried that it wasn't smart enough for some imagined audience, I couldn't finish it. But if I stop trying to explain the connection and just play the music, I think you'll understand me just fine. I'll figure out how to sell the next set of stories. This one is just for me.
I laid the trouble book story aside for a few months. It was springtime in Pennsylvania. I had a girlfriend to visit. I found the rhythm of being a suburban boy helpful, at least for a while. When summer returned, I got ready to pick it back up again, and I checked the Bark and Hiss website. The Trouble Books page had been changed to an epigraph, 2008 to 2013. Keith just said, you know, I kind of want to do, I kind of want to just do something different, and I don't want it to be Trouble Books, and I pretty much just said, yeah, I think, I think I'm there too. A new project had appeared, bearing their last names, Lushovka and Freund. It wasn't anything real dramatic. Um, we did talk about it, though, because it really, it would feel, for me, it would feel kind of sad to try to maintain what we were doing with Trouble Books when that's not how we're living right now, and that's not almost like trying to fit into old clothes. You know what I mean? I'd actually say that with every single time we were ever recording a record, I, I always felt like it was the last one. Like, even when we were doing CDRs before we even did, like, the set of what I consider canon, if I can use such a um, pretentious word, I guess. But um, but I always was, like, begging my equipment, don't die, you, I just want to finish this one thing, it'll be, like, the last thing we do, and then I can be done. Because I always kind of assumed that it, whatever our next record would be would be the one that nobody would really care, you know, and then I'd have a couple boxes of records left over, and then I would say, like, all right, yeah, I should probably... Just probably it but this time um we had new ideas and they just felt like they were something different and I felt like a sense of closure with the entire project like not quite yet it's still a little too fresh but I felt like there's a period of time in which I'd be able to listen from front to back probably not without falling asleep at some point but from the beginning of United Colors to the end of Love at Dusk and feel like that was a like thing you know Their new endeavor, which Keith calls DIY shitty classical music, is more minimal, sparse. But between the lines, I can still hear them. Keith putting on a load of laundry, Linda practicing piano in the living room, and another Saturday afternoon turns to evening. Keith Freund and Linda Lashovka still live in Akron. Their second record is Lashovka and Freund, Fatal Strategies, is available at their website, barkandhiss.com. Our show was produced today by myself, Brendan Maddox, with editing suggestions from Patrick Stocks, Michelle Citarelli, and approved by Kena Doles. Our driver and companion for this story is Anthony Rico, much to his mother's displeasure. 
Our website is investigatingregionalscenes.org, where you can find this and more stories about music. All songs in this episode were by Keith and Linda, except for Patera Nocturne, which was by Keith Freund and Jacob Feige. You can find a list of those songs and links at our website, investigatingregionalscenes.org. If you like what we're doing so far, please leave us a rating at the iTunes Music Store, and maybe a review. We're planning on making a second season, and we're also planning on trying to shop it around. So if you or a loved one have any connections at famous public radio shows or podcasting companies, please reach out to us. If you or a loved one have your own story about music, please email me at brendan at investigatingregionalscenes.org. Thank you to Keith, Linda, Jacob, and Dave, and to Michaela for her patience. I'm Brendan Maddox, back soon with another story about music. next time on stories about music and then one day i was like let's let's crash a wedding right so we 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 put on our our bests our sunday bests and we called up all the major hotels in boston and we asked like what time the reception is that night and um i think this was around the time where it was my birthday was coming up or it just had passed and i watched the holy mountain a film by alejandro jodorowsky and there's a line in the holy mountain that says like um we know here at this company that people love to be, people uh, prefer to be loved by how they appear to be and not who they are. So we provide them with the masks, you know, something like that. And I deleted my Facebook and I shaved my head like shortly after. And I was explaining to Lorena on this night of our big like wedding date, I think it was like, you know what? I, I'm shaving my head because, you know, I see like pretty girls and, and, um, you know, I smile at them and I, and they smile back sometimes. But, like, I don't want to worry about that stuff anymore. You know, like, I, I want to just, like, kind of shut off that that part that is self-aware of everyone who's watching me all the time, trying to compete in this, like, fashion race or whatever. And um, after that day, she, like, had a return confession, I think. My friend Tyler, a fool for love and enlightenment. <laughs>